Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of the Medical Device Success Podcast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you for listening in today. Today's episode is called An Introduction to Artificial Intelligence in MedTech with Bertalan Mesco, MD, PhD. Let me lead off with a few questions. Do you know the three levels of artificial intelligence? Do you know the four major methods of machine learning? Do you know the three medical specialties with the greatest number of active artificial intelligence technologies? In this short podcast, you will get the answers to those questions and more. Bertalan is the director of the Medical Futurist Institute. He has been a guest of the podcast before in episode 36, where we talked about the future of medtech. He and his team have advised or presented to the top pharmaceutical companies, medtech companies, and many government agencies. They have participated in and or led courses at leading universities such as Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. And if you haven't subscribed to their newsletter, pause this episode and go to medicalfuturist.com and subscribe. I subscribe to their newsletter. Also, at the Medical Futurist website, you will find a wealth of articles and ebooks on a wide variety of subjects related to the future of healthcare. Links to this website and books we mention will be in the show notes. As regular listeners know, the emphasis of the podcasts and videocasts for the first half of the year will be value-based care, artificial intelligence, and robotics in medtech. The past two weeks, we introduced value-based care with Barbara Strain. Due to the challenge of scheduling many of these subject matter experts, the episode themes will be mixed up a bit. Don't worry, I will help you keep track of them. I have got more very interesting guests lined up. I just sent out the January MedTech Leaders Community Newsletter welcoming the 14 new members who joined over the past couple months. If you want to learn more about the community, go to medtechleaders.net. There is a free trial, and an annual subscription costs only three or four cups of artisanal coffee, depending on the size of the cup you drink. Now, let's meet up with Bertland to get a foundation in artificial intelligence so we better understand what it may mean to healthcare ecosystems and medtech and our professional lives going forward. Bertalan, welcome back to the Medical Device Success Podcast. It's really great to have you back, um, especially on this particular subject, of course, where you are an expert. Thank you so much, Ted, for having me again. I was looking forward to, to coming back, talking about my favorite topic of all. Oh, it is. Artificial intelligence what, what is your favorite. What else could it be? Okay. Okay. Well, that's super. Well, Perfect. Then we've got the right person helping us with this. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. So, and on all, and everybody was introduced to you as we led up to this. Um, as I did my solo introduction to the program, everybody was introduced to you. So let's talk about artificial intelligence. There's a a, a lot of discussion about it. 
um, a lot of hype in the news and the media and even in peer reviewed journals and so on. So what is AI? Well, um, not so, actually quite recently, I gave a talk to uh, medical students at my medical school, Semmelweis Medical School in Budapest. And I, I, I received three questions basically from the department to focus on three areas under AI in healthcare. One was about the, the simplest definition of AI. The second was about the levels of AI and the major methods. And the simplest definition I, I chose was that if um, intelligence demonstrated by a machine is called artificial intelligence. So when we talk about AI, usually people think about robots um, showing artificial intelligence because that's what we see in movies. That's what we read about in books. But right. any algorithm, any program that can learn and become better with every decision those algorithms can make, because these are machines uh, demonstrating intelligence, would be defined as artificial intelligence. That is the simplest definition anyone can come up with. Okay. And then I think there, that you had um, separated AI into several different levels. Oh, I wish I had done that. <laughs> it oh, wasn't okay. me. It's coming from uh, Nick Bostrom, the excellent philosopher and AI expert uh, who came up with, an, with a really amazing book. If you ever read one book about AI, let, let, I, I really ask you to make it that book, Super Intelligence. And in his book, he describes three levels of AI because whenever an expert does that, it, what, what the expert does is that he or she helps us understand the big picture about that particular trend or technology. So in this way, when Nick Bostrom and analyzed these three levels, what I what has become uh, evident to me was that it's an incredibly long path or process for AI to get from artificial narrow intelligence, what we have today, to artificial super intelligence, the end of the road. So very briefly, he, he came up with these three levels of AI, the first being artificial narrow intelligence, meaning that it's an algorithm that can perform a very well-defined single task. It can play chess, it can play a board game, it can uh, spot pedestrians from a self-driving car, it can try to find um, signs of uh, TBC on a CT scan. One very well-defined single task, but its IQ is of course zero. It cannot do anything else besides that one task. The second level will be, maybe in decades later, artificial general intelligence, meaning that that algorithm uh, has your cognitive capacity. So whatever you as a human being is able to do, you are able to do uh, from thinking in abstract terms to dreaming, singing, um, calculating things, envisioning the future. It can do the same things. And the third level is going to be, if we ever get there, hopefully not, artificial superintelligence, meaning that one algorithm has the combined cognitive capacity of all human beings. Yeah, it, it sounds like the Terminator scenario, and I guess <laughs> that's it. So that the, the plan that most researchers have in mind in the world is just not to reach artificial general intelligence, because this way we would still benefit from using the, the major advances of AI without losing control. Okay. And then in our day-to-day -day life, before we get into, as we, because we're going to move this eventually, this conversation to medicine, but in our day-to-day -day life, when we're encountering um, artificial intelligence is, for example, when I type into Google, sometimes just three words, it knows what I want to search for, even though typically those three words 
might not really tell you exactly what I'm searching for, but suddenly all these terms come up that are pretty darn close to exactly what I'm looking for. Is that artificial intelligence? Absolutely it is. Moreover, okay. if you see any um, advertisements on social media accounts, actually whatever posts and news you see on your social media accounts, or all those have been selected by AI-based, actually machine learning-based algorithms. If you use Google Maps or Waze, that's how it tries to find the best route for you through AI. If you use, I think most services from Spotify, Amazon, Netflix, devices from Amazon, Samsung, Apple, all these tech companies, those are being built on the ground of AI. So I think no matter where you live or what language you speak, you use AI, I think for more than an hour every single day, even today. That That's how big role AI has been playing in our lives already. Wow, that's amazing. And I saw your reference to that in the article you wrote, and I was just sort of taken back. I thought, really? I'm using it that much? But yeah, if you're thinking about maps and if you're thinking about searches and you're thinking about so many other things, um, what about when you call into a phone system and the phone system is triaging you to get to the right person at a company and, and you, you, it sounds like a human voice. I mean, of course, you know, it's automated. Uh, I don't know if automated is the right word, but it is interpreting what feedback you give that. Is that a basic form of AI too? You see, that's a very good example because it, it underscores the notion about how hard it is sometimes to differentiate between AI-based technologies and just programs written in a smart way. So what makes, if something is automated, it doesn't mean that it, it has to be AI-based. But if something is written in a way that the algorithm can keep on making better decisions about the data, or it was written in a way that during the learning process for the algorithm, it could get better with every decision, every data point uh, the programmers fed it with, then it's an AI-based technology. But when uh, a company just using an Excel spreadsheet with some good macros built in, that's still automation, but that's far away from being artificial intelligence. That's why it's so hard for the FDA in the US, for example, to, to regulate these technologies well enough. Because the the past years, I mean, if, if you don't mind me jumping into the topic of regulation right away. Sure. Um, so the FDA has been regulating logged algorithms, meaning that the, the company comes up with an algorithm that can make good decisions, and it was trained on data. It used machine learning, but now it's a logged algorithm. It, the, the program, the, the code behind it remains the same. So essentially, you regulate it once, and then you can bring it to the market. But the real essence lies in adaptive algorithms that keep on becoming better with every single decision they make. And if they make a mistake, that can be corrected. So these algorithms would never make the same mistake ever again. Not like how, I mean, us medical professionals think or work. I mean, that's being human, making a mistake and repeating that mistake uh, again and again. In these adaptive algorithms, these just get better. But what you regulate is just a snapshot of the, the code behind the algorithm. And while you bring it to the market and you still you keep feeding it with data so it makes better and better decisions, but it's a different code than what you regulated before. And what happens to these adaptive algorithms is going to be the question of the next few years uh, in regulations. Okay, that's really interesting. So 
when the algorithm was so where we stand now for example with a regulatory body like the FDA where a a kind of a, a software that's being used in a device let's say it's interpreting x-ray film deep learning or or machine learning may have helped create the device up to a certain point but then you have to essentially stop that learning, lock in a program, and go to the regulatory body and say, this is what we want to take to market. And from that point on, the um, the algorithm isn't learning anymore because you've sort of turned that part off. Am I, am I getting that correct? You're getting it correct. Just one final note here that the algorithm can indeed keep on getting better, but the better part of the algorithm will not be released to the public yet until a new regulation comes out about that same software or product. Okay. Well, that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, So uh, just go ahead. Maybe one more to comment about this, because that's, that's, that's quite a, an important story about the FDA and regulating AI in the past couple of years, about two years ago at the, the medical futurist Institute, we, we, we tried to, to write a review article about all the FDA approved, AI-based medical technologies. And if you went to the uh, FDA website, they have quite a search engine. I'm I'm sure most of us have tried it already. It's really awful. And (laughs) we simply couldn't narrow it down to just AI-based medical technologies. So we decided to do it in the old traditional human way. We started going through hundreds and hundreds of uh, FDA approvals where there was a chance that the technology would be AI-based, either using machine learning or deep learning, or neural networks. And we published a database in uh, NPJ Digital Medicine one and a half years ago about the first open access database, because we, of course, released a database into open access about FDA-approved AI-based medical technologies. We found about 70 of them. And now, about two months ago, the FDA came up with their own database, uh, citing our own database as well, which makes my heart uh, warmer and warmer every single day because it's quite a success story. But the point, what matters here is that the FDA now even has a database about all the FDA-approved AI-based medical technologies. Because the, the reason why I'm telling you this is, is what you just mentioned about how hard it can be to regulate a certain algorithm. Before, the, the FDA didn't confirm if the technology was AI-based. They had no you know, feature for that while um, regulating that technology. If the company mentioned the words, like the expressions like machine learning or deep learning, then you... I think it suggested that they use some form of AI, but nobody in the regulatory body confirmed that. And now finally, they even have a database where they confirm that, well, these medical technologies are not only FDA approved, but also artificial intelligence based. And that's such an important step forward that I think that um, step alone paved the way for adapting for regulating adaptive algorithms soon. Okay. And I want to I want to go back to um, something we were talking about before, where you were sort of comparing just a, a program that's written to react to something, and like let's say the phone system at a company versus Google interpreting a few words that I put in. The point that you were making was that machine learning, some type of learning, and adjustment to that learning has to take place for something to be considered artificial intelligence. Is that correct? 
absolutely. Like okay, all right. In, in the old I, ways, yeah. programs were written and they performed the task they were written to perform. That that's how simple it was. No matter how complicated the program itself was, but with machine learning, they can make decisions that that were not written in their code per se. Right. Okay. All right. And um, and by the way, for listeners. I will have a link to uh, Bernaland's article that I read uh, as part of my education to get prepared for this series on um, artificial intelligence. And I'll also put a link to the book that um, Bernaland just mentioned a few minutes ago as well. I'll put that in the show notes too. So, okay. While we were talking about the um, regulatory side, you mentioned you used a couple words. And uh, one was um, in terms of machine learning, and then I think you use neural networking and or deep learning. What do those mean? So we go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just just the, if, if, if it's possible to do it without. Apps, without I would do my best. That's quite Okay, without going part. to the moon or something. <laughs> <laughs> of the conversation. Yeah. Um, I would say that there are three major methods under machine learning, uh, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. And there is one even more high-level method that's still a kind of a type of machine learning, but it's something really complex called called, uh, deep learning. Very briefly, um, I mean, if you want me to go there, I'm happy to because that's what we did in the in the paper that you mentioned uh, in NPJ Digital Medicine. We came up with a um, scenario where we have an adult playing with a kid, where the adult will be the programmer, the developer of the AI, the kid will be the AI itself, and there will be a toy, a game they will play together that will be the task to perform. And we try to express the, the major features of all these four major types of uh, AI methods by using the same scenario such as in supervised learning, the the adult, well, I will be the programmer from now on. I know exactly what I want to teach to that kid. Uh, there is a there are some toys on the on the ground. There are some boxes, and if the the, the kid finds uh, a, a sphere shaped toy, and there is a box labeled with a sphere, where the kid should learn that. Let's put the sphere into the box labeled with the sphere. Obviously, it's quite an easy game to play. I supervise the whole process and I tell the rules. If you find the shape put into the same box with the same shape on it, it's quite simple. It's like I want to uh, teach an algorithm to uh, mark a patient having or confirm that a patient has diabetes by looking at the medical records. If they find the expression diabetes or diabetes mellitus or something similar to it, maybe even with some some uh, typos that the physicians included in the medical records, it should, come, it should come to the conclusion that that patient indeed has diabetes. In unsupervised learning, I don't do that at all. We play the same game, but I, I don't want to tell the kid the rules. I just watch and observe. And when the kid finished performing those tasks, I just find out what kind of shapes the kid put into what kind of boxes. And I try to come up with some conclusions here. Like that's how... Um, retails, retail uh, companies want to learn about your behavior while going into the store. They just observe you. And if you start making decisions about buying this and that product at the same time, they will put those products closer to each other because they, you know, it suggests the data suggests that people might buy the same things together. Oh, In that yeah. case, I would say that um, I wanted the, my algorithm to go through um, protein networks 
and come up with drug combinations no researcher has thought of before. This way, we can come up with something new, a treatment or a cure, without any researcher coming to that conclusion by themselves. It's quite uh, inspirational. The third thing is reinforcement learning, my favorite method, because that's the method they use to teach uh, the, the programs that became the best chess and Go players. In actually every two-player board game, these algorithms can become the better. So what happens here is that I don't tell the rules to the kid how to play that game. He or she starts playing. I mean, it starts playing it. And I only tell the kid when they made a good decision. Well, this box, you put the right shape into the right box. So in that case, whatever strategy you used, please keep on using that. Imagine an algorithm playing millions of chess games. And when the algorithm could win a game, then we can tell the algorithm, well, this was a good strategy because you won. So keep on using that. The, the reason why I love this, that that's my favorite machine learning subtype, is that if you think about it, this way the algorithm can come up with strategies that are not limited by our cognitive capacity. So maybe it, it starts playing chess in a completely different way than how we have been doing this for almost 2,000 years, even how the biggest grandmasters have been doing that because it has a new perspective of looking at the chessboard and, and what really matters. I just, I, I've been a chess player for many years now. And just one final example here, for hundreds of years, we thought that materials matter on the board. If, if you have more pieces and bigger pieces, you have a better chance of winning. But then came great algorithms like AlphaZero Lila, and these algorithms started proving that, well, dy dynamics matter more than how many and how big pieces I have on the board. Something we have never thought that could happen, even not even grandmasters thought of that. And the last thing here, deep learning. Deep learning is the, is the most complex um, subtype of machine learning because it uses different layers of neural networks. What matters here is that it works, it, it's very similar of how our brain works because it can um, digest different types of information. Those pieces of information go through a lot of layers in our brain, and then a really complicated range of outcomes can come out of it. So when you want to uh, analyze CT scans or images, videos, really complex sets of data, you have to reach out to deep learning methods. And, okay. and I stop here because I think that's that's more than enough about these. Yeah, methods. yeah, yeah. And we have a few minutes left. And so where are we in healthcare right now with deep, with not deep learning, but with artificial intelligence? Well, the hype is huge, obviously. Uh, if you just claim that your company can do AI in healthcare, I'm sure that you will get, you will receive more investment rounds because that's how <laughs> people, people's minds work. But what, if you just zoom out for a second, what matters here is that if there are repetitive database components in a healthcare process, in a treatment, in a physician's or medical professional's job, then those tasks could be automated. And actually, I think should be automated because those database and repetitive tasks don't require the, the human vision, the human expertise that those medical professionals have. So if you look at any medical specialty today, if there are specialties where there are just simply more database repetitive tasks, such as radiology, then of course that specialty stands out because in that specialty, I basically can see a much... Um, brighter vision for using automation. 
but there is no specialty where automation would come as a replacement for medical professionals. Of course, that's, you know, I'm sure you've come across such headlines saying that this or that algorithm could diagnose patients much better than the best physician. Doesn't make any sense. Right. Because practicing medicine is not a linear process. It's not like if I can measure every data point about you, then I can certainly come up with the best decisions. That's unfortunately not, it's not how it works. But there are data-based repetitive components of our job where automation could help a lot. Medical decision-making, medical decision-making support. Um, It could help in analyzing radiology images, flagging radiology images and or medical cases that would very much require the human expertise of a medical professional. Uh, Triaging patients, um, using biomarkers, including the new kinds of vocal biomarkers, and analyzing those biomarkers to, to, to try to prevent diseases from happening or to, to catch them as early as possible. These are the major fields where we see automation having a role right now, not just in five or 10 years. And when I mentioned that study we did about the world's first 70 uh, AI-based medical technologies, three specialties stood out, uh, cardiology, oncology, and radiology. Cardiology, oncology, and radiology. Yes. Okay. I think okay. it's quite clear why in radiology, because of analyzing images is an excellent way of, of um, uh, improving deep learning based algorithms. In oncology, because medical decision support is crucial there. There are so many, literally millions of medical studies out there that no physician can go through, you know, two, three, maybe a week. I think that's at best. And one million come out every year. So we need an algorithm to, to bring us just points of information from studies that could be relevant to our patient's case. And that's what those algorithms have been doing. And in cardiology, because uh, there are so many different types of sources of data included in a cardiological setting from ECG recordings to uh, cardiac and lung sounds, medical records, lab tests, uh, radiology images, even quite complex ones. Um, And all these have to be taken into consideration and algorithms can help with that as well. So that's why these three specialties stand out. Okay. And I just read the other day about a, a software, an AI software that gathers information about a patient and actually alerts a doctor to the prospect that they'll have sepsis faster than a doctor would figure it out themselves uh, while they're in the hospital. Um, these are beautiful examples about retrospective studies. I mean, the, the, at Google's DeepMind, the company that made the, you know, the best algorithm in chess, came up with an algorithm that could uh, predict whether a patient staying at the hospital would have a really high chance for developing acute kidney disease in less than two days, which is an extraordinary important information for a physician or a nurse uh, treating the patient. But these are retrospective studies. These used a huge bunch of data and they, they allowed the algorithm to go through that and, and learn something new retrospectively. But what we are we researchers are looking for to see in studies these days, it would be prospective studies. Well, okay, you develop this algorithm to predict that outcome, a very important clinical outcome. Now let's let's test the algorithm on a real-life, clinically diverse setting, and let's see whether your algorithm can come up with the same decisions and the same the same level of decisions on you know, prospectively on real-life um, clinical data. That, that's that's what we need to be able to really implement AI into healthcare. And that's the future, and that's going to be a ways off. That, that's, the, that's the thing we are 
longing for the most these these days. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And if you don't mind me just saying one final comment here, sure. That's, that's a topic we just cannot uh, not touch upon: privacy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I, I like to say out loud that that we have to we have to conclude at this point that there is no AI revolution in healthcare without breaching our privacy. So the question ah. is not whether we can keep our privacy intact because without our data and medical records and data coming from smartphones and wearables and all these, literally it's impossible to improve AI-based technologies. The real question we have to ask ourselves, and that's what I like, I would like to leave the audience with, is that how much of our privacy we are willing to give up in exchange for a chance for a longer and healthier life. And I think as long as we are the ones making that decision for ourselves, ethically, we should be fine. When it's a company, a health insurance company, an employer or a government, when, well, that's a different discussion then. Right. Well, that'll be an interesting challenge for the developers of AI and the government. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to let you go because I know you have a busy day and I really appreciate the time you spent with us just getting us started on artificial intelligence. And I'm sure it has everybody's minds turning here. And I've got several more episodes coming up with other individuals as we dig into this. So Bertalan, thank you so much. Ted, thank you so much for having the, having me again on the show. And, and Oh, I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, Providing and, us uh, with these great episodes. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Bertalan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Artificial intelligence is here in the medtech industry and the healthcare ecosystem. It could have an impact on your professional career and or your company's success. My advice, be aware of the artificial intelligence around you. When calling on your physicians and other healthcare professionals, ask them if some of the products or software systems they are using include AI. Think about how your products or services could take advantage of AI or contribute critical data. And also think about career opportunities in companies that are focusing their efforts in AI-related products and services. The medtech world is changing fast. Be sure to keep up. Thanks again for spending time with us today. I hope you enjoyed the, this episode as much as I did. Now go win your week.